or insult with insult, but on the other hand, sorry, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against our good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Good evening, everyone. It's great to have you all here. Uh, if, you, if we haven't already met, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Um, and as Heidi's highlighted for us, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter called Glorious Exiles. Over the last two weeks, we've seen that Peter shows us how our living in light of our hope of the future eternity with the Holy God means that we live a holy life right now here in the present. Peter demonstrated what this looks like by describing three example relationships, that between civil authorities and civilians, between masters and slaves, and then between wives and husbands. His challenge in all those different relationships is for us to show surprising submission. This week, Peter continues to delve into what it looks like for us to live this holy life and why we need to do it. So let's pray, asking for God's enabling both to understand what he's saying to us and for his enabling to actually do it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the privilege that we've got to meet together like this in a comfortable place, uh, to have your word in a language that we can understand, to be together with brothers and sisters who know and love you, uh, who want to understand what your word means and to live it out. And so as we spend some time thinking about your word, uh, thinking about what it means, we pray that you would enable us to understand it and that you would change us uh, so that we actually live it out uh, in our lives uh, before all. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Good food, good friends. 
having a good time. Now, if you didn't notice the common word, good. <laughs> its use continues. He's a good catch. She's a good cook. Now, I can recall on a number of occasions as I've run out the door, the last words I've said to my kids are, be good. And then at the end of the day, when I come home and ask them how their day's been, the inevitable response, good. So if we stop and reflect for a moment, I think you'll agree that our diverse use of the word good means that its meaning remains a little bit unclear, defined by some as moral excellence, but it's also then defined as merely better than average. So varied is its use that the word good can even be used to mean the exact opposite of its dictionary definition. She's such a do-gooder, a stinging criticism in the mind of the one who uses it. And yet we're going to see this evening that good is the theme around which this passage revolves. So what is this good that God expects of us? And how can good result in res when people respond to our good with evil? Verses 8 to 12 explain what is the good that God expects from us. Verses 13 to 17 confirm our need to keep on doing good even when uh, people do evil to us. And then finally, in verses 18 to 22, Jesus' example shows us how God brings good from evil. So let's begin with verse 8 and keep your Bibles open there if you've got them there. What is the good that God expects of us? Peter tells the Christians, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. While neither the word good nor submission are explicitly mentioned, clearly all of the behaviours that Peter mentions are the opposite of trying to assert our dominance over other people. They're all about doing what we can to benefit the other. The previous two weeks have emphasised the stark difference between our behaviour and that which is typical. And yet again in verse 9, the Christian response is the opposite of that of the people of this world. The normal response is to do unto others as they have done to us. But instead, when people do evil to us, we respond by blessing them. The good that God requires of us is to stop putting ourselves first and instead seek the benefit of others. Rather than doing all that I can to get what benefits me, I respond to others in a way that benefits them. That's what doing good is, according to this passage. But I think there's a very big difference between aspiring and doing. Most of you have heard that I do park run of a Sunday, on a Saturday morning. Uh, there's about 200 plus runners uh, that all run from Ferry Meadow Surf Club down to North Wollongong and back again. It's a timed run, not a race, um, which just means that People go as fast as they possibly can. But before it starts, the run director often says, make sure you position yourself according to your ability, not your aspiration. As we line up for the start, many like to think that they can keep up with the front runners. But dreams don't always match reality. And so everyone has to evaluate, can I actually run as fast as I think I can? 
or should I start further back in the group so I don't get run over by the mob? Peter quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, to make what I think is a similar point. It's quite likely that Psalm 34 was already very well known to Peter's readers. He quotes from Israel's songbook to ask, are these words merely aspiration or are they already your experience? Even today, we can sing words that speak of our willingness to sacrifice all, to trust God, regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. But those words can be merely aspiration. Likewise, Peter and his readers could sing all about doing good rather than actually doing good. But we can't let it be that way. A number of times in the Old Testament, God's blessing is described in terms of his face shining upon us. His punishment is pictured as him turning away from us. Developing the idea found in verse 7 that the husband needed to bestow honour on his wife or else his prayers would be hindered. So also here in verse 12, it's only when good is our practice, not merely our aspiration, that God's ear is inclined towards us, that he blesses us. Peter doesn't want us to just sing about doing good. We must stop speaking evil, verse 10, and instead do good, verse 11. God's people actively choose to live differently, seen in their words and also in their deeds. God's people are not liars or gossips. We don't condemn or criticise. We don't swear or tell rude jokes. We're careful about what we post on Facebook and how we say it how we respond to people who respond to what we post. Our speech is used for what it was designed for, to encourage and to build others up. On the wall in our house, there's a poster that says, think, T-H-I-N-K. Every time before you speak, you need to think, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? It's a kid's lesson, but I'm pretty sure that it's a lesson that we all can ask ourselves. There's nothing new in it, but will people go home tonight encouraged or discouraged by what we say? Good also describes our actions. We seek peace rather than always trying to win an argument. We push ourselves to demonstrate compassion. We try to outdo one another in efforts to show sympathy to be the ones that cop it on the chin in order to bring about peace rather than allowing grudges to remain. There's nothing new at all in any of these expected behaviours. But their being stated again by Peter indicates just how hard they are to actually do. Agreement that they're the right thing to do is inadequate. They need to become our practice. Studying 1 Peter, one of the things that I've been most challenged by is the standard of behaviour that is expected of followers of Jesus. Rejoicing in trials, loving one another deeply, getting rid of malice and envy and slander, submitting even when mistreated. Peter raises the bar so high that it almost sounds as if Christians are too good to be true. Verse 13, which the NIV translate, eager to do good, summarises the Christian life as being literally zealots 
for good. A zealot is someone who's obsessed by their cause. Nobody has to ask what drives a zealot. And so this photo can go up on the screen. And regardless of what you think about her, instantly everybody knows what drives Greta. She is zealous for the environment. Nobody doubts it. And likewise, people should see us. And regardless of what they think about us instantly, they should know, ah, that one is zealous for good. Religious extremism is a term that's now used to describe one of the worst problems faced by our world today. Zealots for a cause are willing to do anything, including violence. But Christians are to be extremists at doing good. Does that describe who we are? Are we identifiable by all the good that we do? Now, whether we attain this high standard or not is not Peter's focus here. Rather, in verse 13, he goes on to ask, why would anyone seek to harm us if we live this way? If we are good people, then surely we're, we're going to be responded to in a positive way. But he asks the question, knowing the harsh reality, that the world often does respond to our good with evil. And so verses 13 to 17 develop the requirement to keep on doing good, even when people do evil to us. A bunch of naive Christians who always do good, who choose to submit, well, surely they're ripe for exploitation, aren't they? People will take advantage of me if I live this way. And Peter says, that's right. Don't be surprised and don't worry. If you suffer for doing what is right, verse 14, you are blessed. The very thing that Psalm 34 promises us. As our tent up on the stage reminds us, visually week by week, Peter seems to love putting these two incompatible thoughts together. Glorious, exiles. And now he's putting together suffering and blessing. From the very opening of the letter, Peter has indicated his awareness that the Christians were suffering. In the very first verse, they're called scattered exiles. Suffering grief, chapter 1, verse 6. Having war waged against them by sin, chapter 2, verse 11. Ill-treated by inconsiderate and harsh masters, chapter 2, verse 18. Suffering for Peter is not about getting sick or being poor. God's people suffer. That is, they receive the opposite of what they deserve because they choose to follow Jesus. But suffering is not expected and it's not to be avoided or run away from. Rather, as they await the perfection that is theirs in God, it's normal for life here to have instances of suffering. And my guess is that I don't have to convince you guys of this point. Our experience is that life this side of heaven is not a bed of roses. A bed of thorny rose stems, perhaps, but very often not comfortable. Some suffering is the consequence of sin being in the world. Some is directly a result of our following of Jesus. But the more difficult thing to believe, I think, is that our suffering, our good being repaid by evil, results in a blessing seems so contrary to logic, but it shows that blessing is about receiving God's good pleasure. 
to define blessing merely in terms of physical possessions or financial status, comfortability in life, is to miss what is most valuable. If any of those things were the indicator of blessing, many of Peter's original readers were not blessed at all. But true blessing is to have God look on us with pleasure, a beautiful picture of an intimate relationship. It's what blessing is. And so for people who do consider Jesus and relationship with him of utmost importance in their life, how will they respond to mistreatment? The answer, they keep on doing good. But how can they keep doing good when they're being mistreated? Well, it comes down to our motivation for why we're doing good. Verse 15 tells us that we all need to have thought very carefully about why we live the way that we do, why we live so differently to the world. If we're doing good because we think it's a recipe that guarantees bringing about the change in others, then it makes sense for us to give up at some point when we don't see that change occurring. But if we're doing good because we know that it's pleasing to our Lord, then we keep on doing it regardless of what the response is. We do it to please Jesus, not others. That's what I think verse 15 means, to revere or set apart Christ as Lord. And so when you mow your neighbour's lawn or look after their kids and then they turn around and gossip about you, don't evaluate it ultimately as being taken advantage of. You did it because Jesus would have you do it not because you wanted the thanks of the person you did it for. When your workmates laugh at you for your church involvement, when you cook a meal for a sick relative and they complain that you put too much garlic in it, don't resolve to protect yourself from further harm in the future by staying quiet and not talking about Jesus or by not doing those people any further good. Keep on doing good, regardless of their response, because we do it knowing that it pleases our God. Clearly, if we live this differently, sometimes it will lead to questions. People will look at our lives and be bamboozled. If that happens, then we need to make sure that we answer them with gentleness and respect. Be firm in your convictions, but never arrogant in your answers. Why didn't you get even? You could have so easily humiliated her. How come you keep on helping them when they treat you that way? Because I hope in Jesus. I don't need to get revenge because God's got this all sorted out. I don't need to hold a grudge against her. I don't need to turn the cold shoulder towards her. My hope is that in Jesus, the price for all of this pain has already been paid and he will finally fix everything. I leave justice up to him. Each time that we are asked, how can we respond with good? We can point people away from ourselves towards our living hope, spoken of first way back in chapter 1, verse 3. Our suffering becomes the opportunity to speak about Jesus. Even then, some will still criticise us. And in response, verse 16, be so consistent in doing good that even though they don't like your doctrine, they cannot criticise your deeds like Daniel in the Old Testament, that though they looked for a flaw in his behaviour and what he was doing, 
there will be none to find because we're zealots for good. Now, it sounds a lot like this is all about how individuals act. We do this, they respond with that. They're determined to do evil, we set ourselves to do good. It's all my decision. But in verse 17, Peter reminds us of the much bigger picture that's taking place here. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now notice, first of all, that this doesn't say that we are to go in search of suffering. Christians are not a group of holy status. That's not one of these words that are going together that are mixed up. We're not not to look out for suffering and enjoy it. Suffering is rightly held to be a consequence of sin in our world, something unpleasant and by nature something to be avoided. But if suffering comes into our lives, then recognise that it can be a part of God's will for you. Not because he likes to see you suffer, but because this suffering is an opportunity for him to do something good in you and through you. The suffering that Peter has in mind is the result of actions that God holds individual people accountable for, but it is also part of a much bigger plan, his plan. Once again then, Peter goes to the supreme example of Jesus to show how God uses even wicked responses to bring about good, our third and final point. Jesus' life is rightly summarised as a life of good or, in the words of verse 18, a life of righteousness. And in response to his righteous life, Christ was crucified. In this, he sets the pattern for what Peter's readers were experiencing But it wasn't just the fact that Jesus had suffered in response to doing good. What they needed to know was that there was purpose in Jesus' suffering. Jesus willingly suffered because of what it would achieve. Verse 18, he died as the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The good brought out of the bad by God was the restored relationship that he made possible for us. Our status as chosen ones, chosen by God, those who have a glorious inheritance, is only because our God specialises in bringing good out of bad. And likewise, God can use the suffering in our lives to bring about good too. The remainder of verses 18 to 22 are extremely tricky. Some people have described these as some of the hardest words in the Bible to understand. Peter starts not too hard by referring to Jesus' death, his crucifixion. Jesus, made alive by the Spirit, in the Spirit, reached out two spirits from the time of Noah's flood, now in prison. And what does all that mean? Well, the Apostles' Creed interpreted this to mean that Jesus went to hell and preached in the three days between his death and his resurrection to those who had died centuries earlier in the flood. And that's one possible interpretation. Others see Noah's preaching centuries earlier as done in the Spirit of Christ before his incarnation, before he took on our humanity. But the main point that Peter is making is not about where Jesus went between his death and resurrection or who empowered Noah's preaching. He's not making a systematic theology point. Rather, there are two parallels 
to show light onto our suffering. Firstly, Jesus' suffering demonstrates that doing good can be responded to with evil. And yet Jesus' ongoing response of good in response to that evil means that suffering was used by God to bring about further good. Verse 18, he suffered to bring you to God. What God did in Jesus' situation establishes a pattern which can give us great confidence in our own situations. Suffering is not pointless or merely to be endured. We can trust that God will even use suffering to bring about good. So don't flee from suffering. Don't make it your life's goal to avoid it. God allows some suffering into our lives in order to bring about good. But secondly, the, the uh, typical response to God's message is rejection. According to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Noah preached to many people. And yet as we see here in 1 Peter 3, a mere eight people were saved. Didn't have a very good success ratio, did he? In this, the flood sadly parallels the common response today. Before the flood came, Noah's message was mocked and rejected. The vast majority considered it nonsense and no doubt persecuted Noah for proclaiming it. But much greater suffering than the ridicule that Noah faced came in the form of floodwaters. And only those who responded rightly to God's message were saved. Likewise, trusting in the resurrection of Jesus may be considered unnecessary today by the vast majority. And they may turn around and mock us or even persecute those who make such a claim. Yet Jesus' resurrection is the only means by which we can be saved. Verse 22 reminds us that he has ascended to his rightful place with authority over all. And it is only his patience that delays his return to judge. In the face of suffering and people's evil responses to our good, we can take great comfort in the knowledge that God knows what he is doing and that our eternity is secure. Our suffering now is not happening outside of the boundaries of what he controls. It is for a limited time and we endure it in the hope that some will see our response and reconsider their response to Jesus and who he is. And so we can commit to doing good regardless of the response. I asked at the beginning, what is this good that God expects of us? And how can good result when people respond to our good with evil? Well, clearly Peter is not merely telling us to give some more to charity, to help people across the road, to tell the truth and to keep all the road rules. Being good is not about the common thinking that God will accept us because we're decent moral people. God is nothing like Santa Claus, checking who's been naughty or nice. And unlike me running out the door and telling my kids to be good, Peter has shown that the good that he is talking about is to completely reorient our whole lives, a sustained focus on seeking the good of others. Our words and our actions will be for the benefit of other people, not ourselves. And we'll keep on doing this, regardless of how people respond, knowing that God can bring about good, even out of evil actions done against us. 
will gently and respectfully point people to the hope that we have because our ability to do any of this is made possible only because Jesus did it perfectly for us. Let's pray. Lord God, in some ways the message that Peter says, be good, uh, is one that we've grown up with and is no different to our society. And yet in many ways it is so different to everything that we do, everything that our society expects. Well, we realise that in many cases we know the good that you would have us do and yet we don't do it because the reality is, is that we are still uh, people who want the best for ourselves and we think that we can attain it by our own means, by seeking after things that are good for us. And yet the good that we most need uh, is ultimately found in you. And so I pray that you would enable us to change our thinking, for us to understand what good is, and not only understand what it is, but actually do it. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.